Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Overtired with Christina Warren. That was a weird sequence I did that in. That was, but uh, I don't, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Um, hey, Brett, how are you? <laughs> I have a glass of iced tea, a cappuccino, and candied ginger, which is like big slices of gin- ginger dried and covered in sugar. So good. I think, uh, yeah, I'm good. I like it. I like it. Um, I, I'm not a huge ginger person, but that sounds delicious, actually. It, it is. Um, it, it has a nice burn to it, which is one of the better parts of ginger. Very nice. Have you, um, how's your health doing? Well, my health is pretty good. I am tired this week, although less than I was when we recorded last time. Uh, it is uh, our normal record day, which is Saturday. I'm sleepy. I'm going to take a nap again after we finish recording. But I was able to get through the 25 hours of being or 26 hours of being awake the entire time Uh, this week. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but I did it. uh, And so that's super exciting. I feel like we should record in the mornings more often. We we both seem to do really well with morning. Energy levels are up. Coffee is fresh. Yeah, I like it. I'm a fan. Um, energy levels are up. Coffee is fresh. And usually, yeah, because right now it's still the morning, but it's afternoon for you. And uh, it's like the end of a week. So I'm just kind of, I'm in like a uh, place. But yeah. So wh- what's your excuse for being tired this week? Well, okay. Actually, I saw something on Twitter and it made me think, I bet this is an accurate thing that's wrong with me. Uh, I haven't been outside in so long, and I think my vitamin D is probably low anyway because Seattle, but it's got to be like non-existent now. And I was like reading about how everyone has vitamin D deficiencies, and I was like, oh, shit, I should get on that because that probably is one of the reasons why I'm so kind of lethargic and tired. I've been taking vitamin D supplements. Uh, with my bipolar and and my ADHD, uh, vitamin D deficiencies are really hard on me, uh, inc- and vitamin E, omega-3s. But I have a recommendation for you. What's that? If you, um, if you start taking vitamin D, get it in liquid form. Okay. It's more, uh, more digestible. Uh, it, it's a lot of, unless you get exactly the right uh, formulation of the tablets or the capsules, you, you, you can very easily just pass it right through your system without ever absorbing it. So if you get see, it in liquid form. This is my form, fear. So get it in liquid form. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll do that. Um, does that change how you get it? Like, do you have to go to a special, like you don't need a prescription or anything? Oh, you? no, no. Okay, you can order cool. any supplement, uh, service will provide, well, I shouldn't say any, but any, any, you can probably find it on Amazon is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Yeah. Um, I asked because I know that you can, for instance, get stuff like uh, like B12 supplements, like for under your under your tongue. Yeah. They're not actually as good as a B12 shot, but to get a B12 shot is a little more complicated. Well, sure. And which sucks because a B12 shot is so good. But I need to figure <laughs> that out, too. Like I need to find a place where I can just like because I used to regularly get B12 shots. Really? Um, yeah. And like legally, um, yeah, like oh. I'd go to the doctor like I, and, and they'd give them to me and they're great. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. And and so now I need to like find a place that will do it because a lot of times now they're like, oh, you know, take the pills. When I'm like, eh, they're not as good. Just give me the damn shot and it'll help. <laughs> Put it in my veins. Exactly. And it does. <laughs> it does like do that like once a quarter it changes your life. I swear to God. What does B12 do for you? Uh, well, for me, it you know, fights the anemia, but also mm. gives me energy and just makes me in general, like, like makes things better. Uh, a lot of celebrities <laughs> so get them. Be- Valium. Kind of. Well, a lot of celebrities whatnot, like take them like before they go out on concerts and stuff, like if they're feeling run down or tired or whatever. So it's um, the hippie version of speed. 
I think so. But I do think that there's like, I have an actual B12 deficiency, like when they've done my uh, testing, which is why I've been able to like get the shots. But like a way to kind of get around is you can get these B12 tablets like you put under your tongue and, and they help. But it's the same sort of thing I'm assuming as like the vitamin D thing where like it just, it can pass through your system a lot easier. And so it's just not quite the same thing. So getting a shot is better. So I assume that's why I was asking about the vitamin D because liquid I'm sure does absorb better uh, you could probably get vitamin D shots as well, I'm assuming. But um, if I can get that in liquid form from Amazon, I'm all about it. And then I will set about trying to find a place in Seattle that will give me B12 shots. Yeah. Well, I mean, it stands to reason. Uh, it's true of any drug. If you ingest it through your, whether it's your nose or your mouth, you're going to lose a lot of the potency of the drug just through the digestion process and the way that it absorbs through the skin. But if you inject it right into the blood or subdermally, I assume the B12 is like a shot in your butt. No, it's like in your arm. Oh, but but like in the muscle, not in the vein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Intramuscular shots. Yeah, still still more effective than digestion. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I felt much the same about many of the drugs that I, I shot in, into myself. Um, just just a waste to do it any other way. Um, oh, well, but, 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 <laughs> okay, but, but don't people like often shoot those like but those that you needed to get like intravenously? Like that's why people put them in. Yes. I, the webs of their fingers or toes or whatever. Right. Ideally, you hit a vein, but an intramuscular shot where it just is absorbing into the muscle directly is still better than swallowing or snorting. Gotcha. Smoking is pretty effective in, in some cases, but you, you, if you're really precious about the small, let's say gram that you have, uh, you don't want half of it going up in smoke. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought that people didn't smoke it because you lose out on that. Uh, like maybe you get a decent high, but half of it goes up in smoke, as you said. The big thing in Hollywood that I read about in like Rolling Stone magazine, but had I was well beyond my drug years before I could ever try it, is to uh, prep heroin like you are going to inject it. So like cook it and mm -hmm. then snort it through a straw, snort the liquid through a straw and have the the liquid hit the your your nasal mem membranes yeah right and, and then you would avoid any track marks but still get the full effect i guess just a free tip for all of our heroin addict listeners out there <laughs> oh, okay we're gonna, get, we're gonna I mean, get banned from something yo i was gonna say i was like that's uh don't do that no one yeah. do that nobody also, don't do heroin at all through Absolutely. any hole in your body right but that that just feels like okay on the one hand all right good job not having the track marks but on the other hand that that sounds incredibly uncomfortable um i guess like to snort liquid like honestly it's like that, not that, it's it's act, like if you if you're if you're swimming and you snort a, a whole like lung full of liquid yeah it hurts a lot especially with chlorine in it but just snorting a spoonful of liquid is actually like I do neti pots. You know what that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's like where you put your head back and you yeah, you it's know, like a pour a, this stuff up your nose and it like comes, comes out back. the other yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which freaks some people out, but they're actually very refreshing, and I find them like your sinuses can handle moisture. No, yeah, no. Those are actually supposed to be really good. I've done them before for bad sinus infections or whatever. Yeah. Um, although the one thing I think about whenever I think of a neti pot is that episode of the office where <laughs> Jim gets, um, Pam, the teapot yeah, and he has to basically buy it off of Dwight, yeah. uh, because Dwight was going to use it as a neti pot. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was an, a, a neti pot showed up in an episode of Cougar Town that I was rewatching recently. Um, the, the hick dad. Yeah. Finally, like the whole episode was about him trying to figure out how to use one. Here's a tip that has nothing to do with heroin. You can buy squeezable neti pots that you oh. can just use in the shower. You just stick it in one nostril, give it a squeeze. It squirts out the other side and you're done. None of that like holding your head sideways over the sink for 20 minutes. 
Oh, okay. See that I would totally be down with because that has been always been my issue. Is just like I don't have like time to want to set up the whole you know get in front of the sink thing so you can go up one side down the other. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm adding. I'll, I'll put a. I'll put a an Amazon affiliate link to a squeezable neti pot in the, in the, in the show, show notes. notes. So when thousands of people go buy it, absolutely, I'll make. I'll make like a dollar. Yeah. Yeah, you'll 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 get you'll get dozens of cents. Yes. Um, speaking of, uh, two people signed up for a crema off of my my link, so now I just have to keep them hooked for four more months, and I'll nice. get I'll get I'll get money for them. I'll get money for for luring people into <laughs> crema.co. In 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 into your your uh, your. Again, your your coffee MLM. I'm just gonna yeah. keep calling it that. Yeah. I know it's not, but I'm gonna keep calling it your coffee MLM. Speaking of MLMs, I finally watched The Vow. Yes, and yes, yes. It's perfect segue. It was yeah. I did it. I did. It. I did a segue. <laughs> um, I uh, it was very disturbing uh, in the way that um, highly intelligent sociopaths using their charm for evil evil is disturbing mm-hmm. it yeah that that was quite the trip um there's one more episode that will be out this week that like closes everything out but yes oh i had thought that it had just ended okay that's good i thought it was gonna leave a few things hanging but that's that's good um it's it's highly disturbing uh and so there's this point in the in the series where they publish the article that most of us read. Yes. About Nexium and about DOS. And um it they it didn't touch at all on the psychology that gets people to a point where yep. they would willingly have themselves branded with a man's initials. Right. And it it, it was nice that this series really took the time to to kind of like go down that path and help you understand like what how how you get sucked in what makes you stay how you become an active part of a cult and there's this line that dude's like nobody joins a cult Mm -hmm. like nobody joins a cult they join a good thing that they think will make them happier and better and then it becomes like then it, well it becomes the cult uh they become part of a cult but not intentionally yeah no I mean, that, I mean, that was the whole thing so I'm, i've got i'm gonna i put a link in um skype for you um i'm gonna have two links in there if people want to learn more a i really think that people should watch the vow if they haven't already it's really fantastic but the first link that i put in was to that original new york times story that has Sarah Edmondson's brand in it. And like for better or for worse, and what's really interesting is you actually see this process in the documentary, like that article, even though it didn't go into that psychology is what ultimately got the, um, the, you know, department of justice and the attorney general in New York interested in looking into this. Like they were, because other people had gone to the police before for years and they didn't care. And even at first, after they first go to the Department of Justice and the police, they don't care either until the whole kind of wave of Me Too stuff started to put social pressure on the department for them to finally say, "Okay, we have to actually investigate this. Uh, But the other thing is that there is a really good documentary. And I mentioned this, I believe, when we talked about this before on the CBC. There's a podcast series called um, Surviving Nexium," And... This is what was really impressive about this documentary, Uncovering Nexium. This is what, no, excuse me, Escaping Nexium. That's what it's called. This um, was a really good series. Um, I didn't think, um, it was really interesting to me because I didn't think at first that I needed to watch this documentary because Sarah Edmondson was the subject of this CBC uh, podcast series that uh, a friend of hers from childhood made like she literally ran into him this summer that she left nexium and, and, and he like ran into her on some island and he was like how are you she's like well i just left a cult that i've been in for 11 years and he's like what and and she kind of goes into this whole thing and she's literally coming out of it 
as she started talking with him in, in, in the New York Times article, you know, came out while that was happening. But I didn't know what we know in the trial, a lot of those things. And so, or not the trial, in the documentary, uh, a, a lot of the stuff that had happened um, that, that kind of led to that point. But I thought that because of listening to that series, I was like, oh, I know Sarah's story. I know, you know, her perspective. It's interesting that she's in this documentary, but I don't know if I really need to hear more from her. But yet I did, it turns out, because as good as that podcast series was, it didn't go into the psychology the same way. And because it's audio and not video, and I think because Mark um, Vicente, who was the guy that actually kind of got Sarah into it, was participating in, in this this documentary series for HBO, like many cults, I don't know what the obsession with cults of this is these people record everything like they document everything, which ultimately is a problem when you're going to be, you know, uh, indicted on criminal charges, sure. when you have recordings of everything that you do. But like these people, you know, they recorded all their conversations. It's like no one trusted one another. And having all of that as part of the the HBO series, I thought really added to the whole thing, because not only could you hear people talking about the psychology as they're out of this cult, but you have recordings of the stuff that was happening while they were in it, you know, yeah. which to me, I really do think helps me kind of understand more of that psychology of how highly intelligent people are able to get, you know, like sucked into this thing and right. how highly intelligent people are able to manipulate others. Well, and the people that were like most involved in doing the most recruiting were some of the people that you would least expect to fall for this kind of thing. Uh, highly exactly. successful, highly intelligent, uh, good looking, really like decent self-esteem on in most cases uh, when they start. And, you know, they went to this um, uh, self-help seminar basically and were lured into a whole chain of uh, it was an mlm i mean really yeah uh yeah i think i don't know what the podcast got into but a big part of understanding for me was hearing from the guy's perspective uh their path into it and like the groups that started off as just for the males yes and then what and it was those that eventually morphed and became this female only division yep. of nexium um which you know what i have fond memories of the disc operating system dos so it is weird to me every time they say DOS, which is Same. Latin for dominance over submission, except not that's not the exact translation. But um, it, it, anyway, like the male group morphs into this, the sex cult part of of Nexium, and uh, seeing that kind of history of it and not just following the female's path to that in into dos was it was helpful for me to understand how and why yeah no that was helpful for me as well because it was a different perspective and the 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 cbc podcast got into the the male thing a little bit and that one also has a terrible name it's known as sop um all right so something of society protection protectors society of society protectors right and so you've got these two acronyms that are for things that we know in completely different ways <laughs> which in some ways is actually helpful right because if you hear someone talking about dos or sop you're not thinking that you're talking about weird culty shit sure um but yeah the society of protectors they talked about that but they didn't get into it and like so i didn't under, i didn't know you know the stuff like where you see keith ranieri who's now been convicted and is awaiting sentencing is in jail um where you know he was being so flat out manipulative and misogynistic and frankly kind of terrible uh and like total like uh all the gross toxic masculinity uh you know kind of traits all all those talking points frankly uh is, was was his whole bag uh but but he couches it in as he's like oh no i'm enlightened and this is how men and women can talk more together like you know that didn't become uh that wasn't really obvious that that was kind of a, a part of this at least from the the podcast series um i think 
there were a few advantages that the the documentary had one and and this is in no way a slight on the the, the podcast guy because the, the CBC guy did do a very good job but you know you have professional documentarians who are happen to be kind of embedded in recording this stuff and they also had the advantage of a lot more time you know to kind of do this over a area but also you know the men were were actively like participants in this documentary series on HBO whereas the podcast was primarily Sarah's story and she was the main voice you heard although they did a very interesting job where they had people who'd worked under Sarah and called her like the worst boss they'd ever had and people who'd been recruited by her interviewed as well and um you know they they certainly didn't in a lot of ways. I mean, and I think that she herself, she and her husband, actually, that's what, one of the things I really appreciate about the the vow is that the people who were involved in this are grappling with their own culpability and the role that they played in recruiting people into this thing. And, and it's not one of those things where, you know, you, where they are given a, a, a total pass, so to speak, yeah. you know, even though, no, like, which, which their guilt is very uh, palpable in the storytelling. Uh, yeah. They're constantly referring to, I can't believe the part I played in this. Yeah, which which to me is makes it like that much more humanizing, uh, I think, because obviously they're victims and obviously they didn't intend to, to do the things they did. But it is, to me, I think, helpful because a lot of times when you hear these sorts of stories, that guilt aspect is under is like downplayed yeah and um and it's not in either the 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 documentary or the the podcast but yeah i i appreciated kind of that that men's perspective thing because that really did open up that's how you get to dos that's how you get to that what was interesting too especially if you like listen to both pieces together and i encourage you brett as well to listen to the podcast because it's a good listen and most of the episodes are about 30 minutes long um and so I encourage you to to listen to it because it's really good, is that um, when you kind of take them together, you can kind of see what the grift was. Because it was this MLM thing where ultimately you're trying to recruit people into taking these classes to become kind of, you know, become more enlightened. And it was kind of a self-help thing. And, and, and you would get, you know, money and commissions based on that. And very few people made any money off of it. Right. it it's it's the, the real story about how that worked. One of the few people who actually made very good money on it was Sarah Edmondson, who was branded and who ultimately like it was her brand and that image that went to the New York Times and kind of helped um, uh, along with uh, Catherine Oxenberg, who was trying to get her daughter out and who was pressuring people behind the scenes. You know, that that was ultimately what was able to kind of get the attention for them to investigate the really terrible things that were happening. Yeah. But what was interesting is that she admits, and I think completely accurately in the HBO thing that she says, you know, the reason that she was recruited into DOS wasn't because Keith Ranieri wanted her as a sex slave, but because he wanted her to recruit people. Right. Like that's what her role was. Like he didn't see her like, because he never tried anything sexually with her and maybe he would have made passes and she just was oblivious to it and didn't pick up on it or whatnot. But like that wasn't going to be her part of this. Yeah. But the reason they wanted her was because she was so fucking good at recruiting people. And she was because she made a ton of money like a ton of money off of bringing people into it to the point that, you know, she opened her own center in Vancouver, which, you know, I think was, was, was profitable. And, uh, you know, she goes into more details on the podcast, but like she, she did well in the MLM component, which most people didn't do, which is, is interesting because she was high up in the sense that that's another good thing about the, the documentary is that Sarah was high up and was kind of an insider insofar as, she made the company money. But Mark Vicente was high up in the sense that he was like Keith's one male friend and was actually part of the closer to the inner circle of getting more into the psyche about how fucked up this place actually works. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it was uh, Mark Vicente's wife, Bonnie, who left first and you know, she saw what stuff was and she was like, I'm I'm out of here. And it took him longer to leave. And then that's really what kind of kicked off after Sarah left, you know, them, them getting together with, um, uh, Catherine Oxenberg to really all of them working together to take this down. And what's, 
what I like about the documentary, I think I mentioned this when we talked about it last time, is that I had no idea as somebody who's followed this case pretty closely, I uh, read a lot of things about the trial. Uh, if I had lived in New York when the trial was happening, I have a feeling like if I had still been a journalist that I would have actually actively like argued for me to go to Albany hmm. to, you know, sit or, 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 or I actually, I don't even think the case was in Albany. I think it was in Brooklyn, I think is where they were doing the, um, the stuff that I would have like actively argued to like be on that beat and go to court every day, uh, because I, I, I was so interested by it, but, but you know, that wasn't reality. Um, but as somebody who fought, but even what I'm saying though, is as somebody who followed this, I feel like very, fairly closely, I had no idea the role that all these individuals played in act and being responsible for the the police and and the FBI and the government like actually investigating this and taking this down because watching the series it's very very clear that had they not done all the things that they did that the charges never would have been filed like ever, like it, like it wouldn't have happened because in well, fact, they you ignored see- it for so long. They, they, it's not that no one was reporting this. Exactly. Like once people once were. Sarah got into really pursuing it, she found out that like people had left the organization years ago. Yep. And, 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 and submitted reports to the attorney general, to the yep. DA and had no one gotten cared. no traction at all. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. No, they had no traction. Not only that, but, there were people who were sued out of existence. Like there yeah. were, um, and, and, and the podcast does actually go into this and interview some of those women. 360 pe- lawsuits in a 10 month period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this woman in Seattle, um, who I would, I would love to interview some point who, you know, she opened up a, a center. She went bankrupt and her full-time job became defending herself and she won, but she was having to go up against, uh, Claire uh, Brofman, who is um, the heir, she who's been sentenced now to, I believe, six or seven years in jail, um, who was like the the money behind this. I think, Seagram's, I think, Seagram's heiress. Yes, Seagram's heiress, who is estimated that she gave them over two hundred million dollars um, mm-hmm. over her period of time. But but you know she was funding all these lawsuits, and this poor woman who you know, it was just a regular working class person, you know, had like a kind of, I think kind of a, a health bookstore or something that, that, that went under. And then she had a, a Nexium facility. She leaves. Um, and she was never part of DOS. She was never part of any of that. She left for other reasons and she was sued. Yeah. She had like all those hundreds of lawsuits against her, uh, where, and where the court even said in some of their filings that they'd never seen, attorneys act so egregiously and so like viciously and aggressively towards someone and it became her life and she couldn't afford a lawyer like she could not afford an attorney and when she filed for bankruptcy they held her bankruptcy out for years and went over every little thing and tried to prevent her her bankruptcy proceeding from happening I mean it was you know they they did everything they could to ruin her life and for many people and and to some extent frankly probably did to some extent but she ultimately prevailed out of sheer just tenacity like representing herself going against very high-powered lawyers um which just again shows that the people that were sucked into this thing were not dumb people a dumb person is not going to be able to defend themselves in court and win the thing uh, against people like that the thing with these like they're called slap suits like the, yep. the person suing doesn't actually expect to win. They expect what no. happened to happen. They expect exactly. to, to create, to go after someone who can't afford to defend themselves and silence them by yep. making them go bankrupt, by tying them up in court, by basically, uh, it's like the filibuster of legal proceedings, except with far it- more dire consequences for the person being sued. Well- Without a doubt, but but usually people won't go all the way through and follow through because, as you said, exactly the point is is to, to to tie people up, and it's interesting because you very rarely do see somebody automatically prevail. I mean, usually what happens? I mean, I, I would argue that the Gawker lawsuit, uh, which uh, you know uh, Peter Thiel was secretly financing, mm-hmm. was largely a slap suit. What wound up happening because of how far it went and because of the jurisdiction they were able to argue it in and a bunch of other things was that, you know, Gawker lost and then the the judgment was not stayed uh, and and um, because 
there are almost zero companies who could uh, survive a $130 million judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the company uh, had to be sold, you know, went bankrupt and, and, and whatnot. And, and, and then, you know, things were sold off. But that was that was a slap suit. And, and it was one of many. I mean, that the, the thing is, is and there's a great documentary on the Gawker thing called Nobody Speaks that doesn't just cover the Gawker trial, but also covers some other anti-First Amendment uh, things that have happened. There's there's a case with the Las Vegas Sun and some other stuff. But what was less covered with the Gawker thing was that, that the, the, the whole Kogan lawsuit was the big thing, and that's ultimately what took down the company. But um, Teal was also behind a ton of other lawsuits that had zero merit, like zero. Like yeah. there was uh, like Charles C. Johnson, who, you know, is like that that right wing troll who um, like he's been permanently banned up from Facebook and, and Twitter and a bunch of other platforms. And and he's like docs people. He's just like a truly terrible person. He uh, sued for libel because um Someone who ironically now works at the New York Times, a very good reporter, posted, and it was posted as rumor, but there was a rumor that uh, when he was in college um, at Claremont McKenna, he shit on the floor uh, and uh, like in, in the bathroom or something and was like caught. And and like that was like a, a, a known like kind of story about him. And he sued over that being published. And there was like zero anything where that could be considered libelous. Like it wasn't presented as fact. It was presented as this is a rumor that we're hearing. He's a public figure, you know, like there it's, it's a, it's a pretty cut and dry thing. But when Univision bought the company formerly known as Gawker media group, it sands the Gawker archives uh, and was going through the, the sale to finalize everything. There were a number of, of posts including the the Charles C. Johnson post. There was also one from uh, an insane, insane guy who's also very litigious. So I'm being careful to deliberately about what I'm saying, but <laughs> sure. he has claimed, he's claimed that he invented email. Do you, are you familiar with this guy? No, no. All right. So there's this guy who's a computer scientist uh, and uh, he used to be married to Fran Drescher. He tried to run against Elizabeth Warren for Senate uh, he's from India and then immigrated to the United States. And when he was like 11 or 12 in the seventies, he created some, um, sort of kind of like intranet experience for some dentists in New Jersey. And as part of that, he had some sort of electronic mail system that was part of his inter office kind of setup that he created sure. for them. And he filed patents on that and claims uh, that he invented email in 1979. Now, all prior art proves that email existed long before that and electronic mail and that sort of thing existed long before that. And certainly the system that he created, especially as such a young person, was very impressive, but that was not the invention of email. But he was able to get the Smithsonian to write and feature him as the creator of email until people looked into it and they were like, wait, 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 this is not, this is not accurate. You know, ARPANET and a bunch of other things. There's a lot of things that predate this. Gawker wrote a story about how, not even Gawker, but said Gizmodo wrote a story about how this was inaccurate, kind of delving into his accusations. Uh, TechDirt, the publication did as well. And he sued using Charles Harder, uh, who's also one of uh, Donald Trump's attorneys, uh, funded by Peter Thiel, um, sued, uh, the sued Gizmodo over, um, the accurate claims that he did not invent email and, and tied this up in court for years. Uh, he also tied it up in court for, for years and years against, um, TechDirt and TechDirt is against these, these slap suits and is, is, you know, is, is for anti-slap legislation for this very reason, because TechDirt almost went bankrupt from this, um, as well. And when, the Univision deal closed. We like I, I remember because we were in long union meetings and stuff over this. One of the things that happened is they just settled all the lawsuits. And so as part of that, they removed about six posts from across the sites. And we were, as journalists, very, very upset that these very valid stories that were in no way 
questionable in terms of their journalistic integrity. Like it wasn't a thing where you can you can look at the Hulk Hogan tape and you can say tape and you can say, you know, that might have crossed a line in some cases and and that had been removed years previous and and you know the video had anyway. It's like okay that that's taken down or whatnot. These were things that were in no way controversial. Yeah. Uh, like like these are very direct things and the posts went down. Um, our way. Uh, to t- kind of get around it because the the union was was very upset about taking stories down sure. was was to then write reporting about the fact that the stories had to come down <laughs> embedding the original stories sure. into that reporting as references it's like for that, what happens that Donald Trump Jr ad camp or ad that came out where he's like and I'm not I'm going to take the high road and I'm not going to talk about Hunter Biden's cocaine problem <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Exactly. It. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to mention, you know, I, I could mention all these things, but I'm not. Yeah. No. So we had to kind of do the the, the re-reporting on on um, that stuff. Uh, but uh, the, the, the tech dirt case was even worse because, you know, they're like an independent place. And, you know, you, but you just see the impact of these slap suits. So, uh, but yeah, to go back to the Nexium thing. Yeah. Like um, the, the the attorney general and, and uh, you know, uh, the police and people had already been called in to look into this and they were basically like, no, we don't care. And, and I think that what the documentary shows is that it really took an an intense amount of work for people behind the scenes to put pressure on all the, the powers that be. I think that being featured in the New York times was key. Uh, ultimately that wasn't the only reason that they were in, able to investigate it but that was something that even in like when the charges were filed like the new york times reporting was cited significantly even if that wasn't the main reason like that at least could be a call out that says okay this has been reported in a major news publication and it's not as if other news publications hadn't published stuff the albany times union had published a lot of stuff but the albany times union is not the new york times and I also feel like even though it didn't come up publicly, like the fact that Catherine Oxenberg, who I wasn't familiar with, but she was an actress who was on Dynasty in the 80s. And her mother is first cousins to print is, is Prince Charles's first cousin. And I believe that her grandmother is also some, you know, part of royalty um, in another royal family in Europe. And so she, you know, a literal dynasty. Yeah, exactly. So she, you know, so like her mother is like literally in line. She's like however many thousands of people down, but she's like, you know, part of the Royal family and, um, you know, has like lineage or whatever. And, um, that's not irrelevant as it turns out, right? Like that's one of those things where, especially when you're talking about competing with people who have tons and tons and tons of money, nearly limitless resources, that's the sort of thing you need. And, but it made me question, like, I'm so glad that we, that obviously all this happened, that, that all these people who were part of it, who feel so guilty did actually do the work to hold people to account, but it makes me question. And it's kind of scary to think about. It's like, okay, what about all those, those times? And what about all those cases where you don't have people who have those resources, who have the ability to be tenacious, who don't, have the social cues of the headwinds happening around Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Matt Lauer and all the other things to force prosecutors to take things more seriously. Like what, what about all of those cases? Because you know that there are so many of them that we just never know about. And those that don't have, you know, Academy Award nominated documentary filmmakers embedded with them as they're going through that process. Like, I, you know, there have to be so many of those stories that we never hear about, never see. And that's kind of, that's kind of depressing, yeah. but it makes me that much more grateful that the vow happened. And I'm sorry, that was like a 25 minute Christina rant on the vow. Hey, you were timing it too. So yeah. let's say that you go to HBO and you do a deep dive on the vow and Nexium. You're going to want a palate cleanser afterward. Dude, check this out. I am fucking segueing like a pro today. You're going to want a like palate a cleanser after that. Yes, and you are. And you know what's really good? Ted Lasso over on Apple TV Plus. Yes, it is. Yes, Did it I is. nail that? Did I, I think I just nailed that. You nailed it. You nailed oh it. Yes. Oh, my God. Ted Lasso is so good. Yeah. It, it, and it's so wholesome. 
It's and so wholesome. Usually for me, super good and wholesome aren't in the same sentence. I like no. things raunchy. But it, it it it's 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 like Ned Flanders with a little bit less religion to it. Yeah, I was going to say I don't even think Ned Flanders is accurate cuz Ned Flanders is kind of annoying. Well, so if it weren't for uh what's the main character actor's name? Uh Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, if it weren't for Jason Sudeikis' character often being or almost always being right, his his colloquial howdy doody uh kind of personality would be annoying but he always there's always a little ned flanders doesn't have depth as a character that's Um, it that's it ned flanders doesn't have depth and ned flanders yeah yeah i think that's it i think it's the depth part ted lasso does it's 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 glossed over by the howdy doody thing but he he is a he's a, a deeply caring and intelligent person who He's willing to throw himself. Okay, for anyone who doesn't hasn't already seen this, it's it's an American football coach who gets drafted, hired to coach uh, a British football team. British football team, meaning soccer for you know Americans, um, and he's completely out of water. But he's the kind of guy who would take that job because it's a challenge. That and he wasn't sure what was going on in his marriage and wanted to get. It. But that, I, I I I digress. Um, he he he's the kind of guy who just says, yeah, that sounds like a challenge. Let's do it. Has no idea how to play soccer, has n- doesn't understand the rules, doesn't understand the teams, doesn't understand the most basic concepts of it. And he dives in as a coach and it's kind of his his journey. And it's goddamn delightful. It is delightful. Um, it, OK, I, I feel like it's filled the void that the loss of the good place <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Because um, they're very different shows, and I would say that Ted Lasso is, is even more wholesome. But, like, The Good Place was especially, you know, it came out in 2016, and it was just, like, this show that was nice and you just kind of needed. Yeah. And and I feel like that's the role that Ted Lasso uh, plays now. It's just, it's wholesome is exactly right. Like, it's the and thing that it, everything else is horrible except Ted Lasso. Yeah, never has there been a year that so needed something like Ted Lasso. And, and to be fair, most places, most networks could not have predicted 2020 and done the production in time for the lockdown on a show that would so well fit the needs of a nation at that time. No, I agreed. Agreed. So like hats off to, to all of them for doing it. Here's the ironic thing. I have to say, Ted Lasso has already been renewed for a second season. A lot of people have been writing great things about it. And it was interesting. You can look back at some of the early reviews of the pilot. And people liked it okay, but it didn't get super great reviews. And then by like the middle of the series, like the first season, uh, you know, the reviews started to be like, hey, this is really, really good. Because one of the interesting things that Apple's doing as opposed to Netflix uh, it, and Hulu takes this approach for the same part as well as that they release the episodes weekly rather than dumping them all at once so you can binge watch. Um, and and I actually like that approach. I, I think that there are, are ways you can kind of do both to maybe make more frequent drops so that people can binge watch it more. But I actually do enjoy the process of being able to discover a show um, uh, over time if I'm able to catch it when it first drops as opposed to every single episode becoming available because that then creates this weird pressure for me. It's like, Oh, I've got to, got to get through this right away. It's um, a very different experience though. There it is. Are, there are shows that I would not like if I could not binge. I I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And I'm not saying that like, I, I dislike the the binge aspect and I'm glad I've binged Ted Lasso. What I am saying though, is that I do appreciate for certain things the ability for it to unfold um and yeah. i do like they say hey we're going to we've got this many episodes and they will be released weekly and and you know um they will all be out i feel like what hulu does sometimes i feel like is maybe the best kind of compromise which is to be like okay we'll release a couple of episodes a week yeah um i i think that that's a, a good compromise but i do like having that um kind of uh different cadence but um the reviews as the series got on, it got better and better. And everybody was like, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. 
But what's interesting is that the show is really wholesome and it's a hit. And it's kind of sad to me in some ways that it's on Apple TV, not because I have anything against Apple TV Plus, and, and I'm actually glad that it's already been renewed and maybe that wouldn't be the case if it had gone on something else. But the show was based on a character that Sadek has created for NBC Sports and it's produced by Warner Brothers. And so Warner Brothers now has their own thing, HBO Max. And this would have been a great HBO Max show, not an HBO show, but an HBO Max show, meaning something that would have, you know, lived on on uh, the, the title is terrible, but would have not been on the premium HBO network, but would have been an, an original series for HBO Max. But it also would have been a great original series for Peacock, which is NBC Universal's um, new streaming thing. And um, it's where, you know, Parks and Rec is, is now going show. to live. Yeah. And uh you know, and, and Peacock's actually, I, I think, really good in terms of the new streaming offerings because it has a lot of really good catalog stuff. The commercials are reasonable and um, they are going to have some original series as well. And so it's sort of a weird thing in that it was greenlit before those services launched. So Apple got it, but everybody who was involved in it like had contracts with, with these other companies. Sure. So that's that's yeah, my inside yeah, baseball thing good for Apple. I mean, I agree. They need it. I actually really liked the morning show. Yeah, uh, I don't know too. if you watched that. All morning show was fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the episode um, that shows the, the, the girl when she goes into the hotel room with him yeah. was one of the most real representations of that. Of the whole Me Too. Yeah. The origin well, of, of Me Too. Yes. And, and, and frankly, of, of date rape that I've ever seen. Mm hmm. Um, on television, I've never seen like a, a portrayal that captured it that accurately. Yeah. Uh, ever. And uh, really, really, really good. Um, we have a sponsor read, don't we? We do. And and you you, you mentioned HBO Max. I and did. I was going to pull off because there's another show on HBO Max that I want to talk about. And I was going to pull yeah. off yet another perfect segue but we do have to do uh, our sponsor read. Yeah, Not we have to. Well, we do contractually have to do. We the do contractually read, have to. But also, but, but I'm also, excited about it. So yes, yeah, so it's a good sponsor read, and this can fit in because if you're in a country, for instance, that doesn't let you have access to HBO Max or Peacock or US Netflix. Yeah, this could be an option. It, yes, when you're traveling. ExpressVPN is definitely an option. Um, the focus of this week's read is, uh, about, uh, your data and your privacy. So it goes like this. Have you ever wondered why internet access is so much cheaper these days, like 30 to 40 bucks a month? That's because internet service providers like Comcast or AT&T aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies, which I could also segue into the social dilemma documentary I want to talk about. But again, yes. again, we are contractually obligated to finish this. And and I, I feel good about it. I, I'm not Same. trying. This is this is a good thing. They are supporting the show. Um, anyway, uh, what's the, what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your internet provider can't get a hold of it? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all of your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your internet provider from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices, including tablets, smart TVs, and even your entire router so that your, your whole family can stay protected. And I can't stress this enough. We've repeated this uh, week after week, but ExpressVPN is super simple to use. It's literally just one click and you're connected. There's no settings, no dials. It just connects. It's and awesome. You're, and you're just protected. So your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com slash overtired. And when you visit expressvpn.com slash overtired, you get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash overtired to learn more. Thanks to ExpressVPN. Yes, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I want to I talk about... Um, 
the uh, the other uh, uh, the documentary that you mentioned, and then after that, I want to talk about NB real quickly. Yes. Yep, we'll we'll which, try which to I fit all you of on this to. in. Yeah, totally. which I turned you on to, and uh, I because I saw it, and I was like, Jesus "You're gonna Christ, love this." It practically deserves its own show, but honestly, <laughs> honestly, we should we we should mention it, and then we probably should make it its own like top segment next time we talk because I feel like it's the kind of thing we can we can offer a short glowing review of, and then the people that would actually be wowed by it can go check out the GitHub link. But we'll see. Because we have a Discord chat where people can give us yeah, feedback do. now. and That I'm now part of. Absolutely. Christina joined the Discord while we were talking. Uh, she got her, her presentation. And watch, are you in the Discord right now? I am. I've already been memed, which is fantastic. Watch this. If I type bang Taylor, exclamation point Taylor, it'll flip a coin to tell us whether we should talk about Taylor Swift. <laughs> I can also, also type... A number and then the word topic and it'll pick three random topics and in this case it says we should talk about taylor swift music and software but we're going to ignore that and talk about the social dilemma which yes. uh was a documentary about uh Facebook. social media and it was highly disturbing to me which is weird because i already knew social media was bad i know but i it, know and it's real bad. I was going to say, and I feel like there's, I don't know, certainly not like the next same people because I didn't get anybody in a cult. Uh, I didn't get anybody <laughs> branded. But, you know, I spent the, the, the early part of my career writing about and advocating for and being like a big supporter of social media. And my career exists in large part because of social media, like genuinely, like my career exists because sure. of social media. And so I, but I, so I have these very strong conflicted feelings about just how bad so much of this is for society. And yet, like, how could it's personally been for me? What, what got me is like, I've always said, there's this trade-off between privacy and convenience and things like targeted ads actually often surface things that I would want. And in a lot of cases, I would rather see an ad for something that actually interests me than just a completely random web ad. But what this documentary reveals is that not only can social media, specifically Facebook and Instagram, not only can they uh, target exactly what you're thinking, doing, feeling at any given time, they can adjust it. They can cause perception shifts that actually change, say, what you what ads you're going to click. They can uh, guide you toward clicking an ad by determining what you see and in what order and paying attention to how long you look at a post, what you like, what you respond to. Uh, they detect what mood you're in and figure out what to give you next to keep you on the screen because that's their ultimate goal is to just keep you watching. Yep. And same with YouTube and YouTube suggestions and the way all yep. of this works. It's the fact that they can shift my perception and this is how people are radicalized. Yes, uh, it is. Because but Facebook doesn't care what they shift your perception to as long as it keeps you on the screen and keeps selling you ads. And if that means shifting you to QAnon, they're cool with mm -hmm. it. They're, they'll yeah. turn a blind eye to that. Yeah, I, I think that I've mentioned this before on a previous episode, but I'm going to mention it again and put it in our links. Um, I've also put in the Skype chat. Uh, my friend Kevin um, wrote an amazing article for the New York oh, yeah. Times uh, called uh, The Making of a Radical. Mm. And uh, what, how he does it, the, the presentation of it, first of all, is just beautiful. Uh, it, and it goes through his entire like YouTube history. And you literally see everything that he's ever watched. And you see the progression of how he was turned into a radical based on the, you know, and, and they do that in part by showing a 48 hour snapshot of what he watched in, in 2015. And you can see the, the, you know, recommendations getting, you know, more and more towns like reconfirming things and like reconfirming biases. And, and you can literally see the algorithm being, tuned to reinforce engagement and to keep him on longer and longer. And it's, it's fascinating. 
Uh, it's a it's a really good long read. Uh, Kevin did amazing reporting on it uh, for a. Uh, for, for, for the magazine, uh, New York Times Magazine on this. And um, Kevin and I are, are former colleagues. Uh, uh, so me saying this is uh, certainly partially because I know him and I know his reporting, but also it's just, it's really good. But I think that that's a really good uh, thing to read in addition to watching that documentary uh, because it's so true. And I think that that's what more and more of us are coming to realize is that like to me, that's that that really is the dilemma with social media. I think I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with social media. And social media has existed long before Facebook and long before Twitter and long before YouTube. What's different is the algorithm, which is all about reinforcing attention and reinforcing, um, you know, people to stay uh, attuned and logged in. That is a distinctly new thing, which didn't happen, like, say, to LiveJournal. LiveJournal didn't have an algorithm that showed when you would see a friend's post everything yeah. happened chronologically right. and in fact facebook was chronological for quite some time and it was the introduction of the news feed and of them starting to show things in non-chronological for up uh, you know order uh which if listeners recall like when instagram made that change a number of years ago people got really upset i'm still really upset I want my I want my Instagram posts in order. That's the only way they make anyway. Yes. Right. No, but right. But 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 we but this this, you know, documentary explicitly makes it clear. This is why they move away from the chronological impact. It is all about keeping you engaged. And because they've they've sold to their shareholders that engagement is one of those metrics that they can look at for, you know, continued growth. Mm -hmm. And they've tied that um They've tied it to revenue and maybe it's true, but it wouldn't have to be. You know what I mean? Like they chose to double down on that as as a mark of showing growth. But to me, what's really disappointing about this is that obviously you can influence and impact and manipulate how people are going to stay engaged with stuff and, and, and uh, keep them online and keep them part of these things for longer and longer. Like, obviously, you can do all of those things. Um, But what's not clear to me is like. I, they didn't have to do that. Like, no, we, just charge for the service to begin with instead of selling or, their users. Or they could have continued to sell their users, but without having to like double down and and tune everything for engagement. Like they, yeah. they, whoever like whoever it was who made the business decision to sell engagement as the metric did the world a major disservice, not just because it has, you know, um, reinforced the the worst types of behavior, but because now it has become the de facto and accepted business solution. And so I don't know how we get past engagement metrics. That's the really scary thing, because I feel like if that had never been brought into the conversation around ad companies, even knowing that that was an option for them, then we wouldn't have gone down this, this path. Um, and that's not to say that, that ad executives might've eventually, uh, gotten smart at the fact that you could do that, but it would have taken a really long time. And it could have been something that those networks could have pushed back on. You know what I mean? Whereas this wasn't something like, this is the really interesting thing to me. People blame and not incorrectly, but people really like to criticize the ad tech industry for a lot of stuff. And I'm not opposed to that. But I have to say that in these cases, ad tech didn't do anything, didn't right. have anything to do with this. They simply were were taking advantage of systems that these platforms took upon themselves to create and reinforce. Yeah, they were well, the beneficiaries. They weren't offered the, a lot of other options. Like this wait, is the way that we're going to sell these ads. Precisely. And that's that's kind of my point is that is that but but like that's the thing is like that if, if they've been offered, OK, we will sell these ads based on engagement that has not been tuned to keep people on longer and longer. It's not like the ad money would have gone someplace else. Right. You know what no, I mean? Capitalism determines that you take the exactly. most effective route. Right. And and so to me, like you can blame the ad tech industry for a lot of things, but this is really one of those cases where it's like it was just handed to them on a silver platter. And then, of course, they are going to see that this is effective and double and triple and quadruple down and wants to get uh, you know, longer and longer engagement times and more and more other things. But it's just, it, it completely shifts the nature of, of how, and obviously people have been 
figuring out for years. I mean, television is a perfect example of this radio too, even books. It's like you figure out what's going to get the most readers, the most viewers and whatnot. And you, you tailor your conversation to that. Like clickbait existed long before the internet, you know, um, yellow journalism was pioneered by Joseph Pulitzer and, um, William Randolph Hearst. And, uh, I mean, it, it is notable. Uh, I think I've probably said this before that, Joseph Pulitzer was a pioneer in yellow journalism, and uh, yet his name is on, you know, mm-hmm. the most uh, one of the most prestigious journalism schools in, uh, you know, Columbia, and he, you know, it's the name of, of, of the most revered awards in in journalism. But like, if you actually look at his journalism and his access to publisher, he was very, very much of the the sell papers at all costs kind of newspaper baron days, and and he and William Randolph Hearst used to do clickbait like that was what they did um but uh so that that's something that's not new and and that would still be an issue but you didn't have this additional aspect which is the only things that you see and the only things that are reinforced are the things that are going to bring up the most outrage and division and um anger and uh you know keep people from you know clicking off and doing something else. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Think about that a lot. Yeah. I, I, I appreciated that at the end of uh, The Social Dilemma, they offer, uh, they, they don't say you have to go out and delete your social media right now. Um, they, they, you know, you may, you may come to that conclusion yourself, but they offer some tips at the end. And some of them I had never never even considered like uh like never accept recommended accounts uh never like when facebook says friends you might follow or you might also be interested in never accept those like that is just a perfect way to put the content that they determine you need to see to keep you on screen that's a pathway to get there and stuff like that uh, if yeah, everyone yeah. understood this, I, I think people could be a lot safer on social I, media. I, I agree with that. I also think that it's one of those things. Um, it reinforces that it works. Um, another former colleague of mine, um, Kashmir Hill, who's also now at the New York Times, did some amazing reporting um, uh, for the investigations um a team at a, a what was then a Gizmodo Media Group uh, about how Facebook determines you might know this person and who your real friends are. And it's really creepy. Like I had one that it recommended to me last week that says, oh, you know, you might know this person. And it gave me a person who I don't have any shared Facebook friends with with them. I don't believe um, we don't have any outward connections but this is someone that I've been working with on uh, uh, very frequently on a couple times a week on um, uh, a new podcast project that I've been working on for uh, the New York Times and, and Verizon. And so he and I have been working together quite frequently. But like his phone number, for instance, we, we text via signal. We almost most of our communications has been over Zoom and over email and we're not connected on any other social networks yet you know, my, my audio producer is now being a recommended person to me by Facebook. That's tough. And that, right, exactly. And I'm like, and I know that like, they're not going through my email. Right. right? But yet there are some other digital fingerprints and clues someplace where it's been able to successfully determine that I should be connected with this person. That is frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for someone smart enough to use signal to like still be defeated by uh, fingerprints. You don't even know where they're coming from. That exactly. Is, that's terrifying. Uh, right. It is. And, 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 and Kashmir like did this great investigation to kind of figure stuff out because she was in a similar situation where she was like, somebody was, there was, and there were cases that she reported where like somebody was like suggested to be a friend of someone that turned out to be like a relative or a sibling or something like person didn't know existed. Like there are, this is this is to me like the ultimate um, argument against the fact that it's like oh all the the data is is anonymized. It's like well yes and no. It might be anonymized in the sense that the advertisers don't specifically know who you are, but there are enough pointers and there are enough things that if someone wanted to recreate and figure out who you are and create a profile based on you know your your um, advertiser ID number and whatnot 
we can see the fact that just that these recommendations for people that you might know are correct and and that that, that are that are so followed with things and many times they can even follow things based on location that's another weird one with this though like me and this person don't even live in the same state yeah. like uh you know but like but it, it's so insidious that you know i'm very tech savvy the person that i'm communicating with is tech savvy and you know it's and I'm not I'm not, I'm like not mad that like Facebook suggests that we should know one another. It was just one of those things where I was like, how do you know that this is somebody that I'm communicating with very frequently? Like how do, like in the fact that they do because of the fingerprinting and all the other stuff that goes on, that is the thing that makes me just go, damn. So if you wanted to keep track of all of the uh, potential fingerprints and you wanted to do it in the geekiest way possible. There's a command line app, a command line utility. My, this one didn't work as well. No. I felt like I was going to go for a, a like a trifecta of segues for this episode. You you were so successful in other things. Also, we've gone over an hour. Should we just start with NB next time? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We will we will put this off. This deserves more than five minutes of our. It time. really does. It really does. But we'll give you a preview. I found this command line thing actually on Hacker News. I have to give Hacker News the credit, uh, and I and I hate saying nice things about Hacker News, but they were correct in this case. And uh, listeners, when I say that never have I seen a project that screamed to me that it was Brett Chirpstra more than this, uh, <laughs> I mean, I stand by it. I've never seen a project that like screamed to me Brett Chirpstra more than this to the point that when I was looking through how it's written out. I had to keep checking that it was like not something that you actually made, Brett. Okay, so yeah, let's leave that as the teaser. Yeah, that's the, that's that's the teaser. Because I so. I agree. I couldn't believe that it wasn't mine. Like it seems like the kind of thing I would have stayed up for five days making. Yes, and the things a whole whole thing's a bash script. I it's know a bash script. It's a bash script. It's it's I've seen some really impressive, bas really impressive bash scripts in my day. I think this is probably it's in the top five, if not the top top three. It's definitely in the top three. All right. So there will be a link in the show notes. If your curiosity is just peaked and you got to go find it for yourself, look for NB in the show notes. But otherwise, we will we will discuss in a little more depth uh, in a week. Yep. All right. Well, Christina, I. I have a nice weekend. I know it's Wednesday for everyone listening to this, but for us, it's the weekend. It is. And you should have a good one. Yeah, as, as should you. As should you. Thank uh, you. Get some sleep um, and uh, enjoy hacking away on stuff. I look forward to um, when we talk next time. I will also be, be in the Discord uh, chatting with people now. But I also, for, as a teaser for next time, I want to I wanna have a debate with you about 60% keyboards versus like... 65% or other ones because <laughs> I, ha I have strong opinions and uh, I didn't realize because I'm not super into keyboard culture, but my friend Alex Kranz wrote a very contentious um, uh, review of the, um, of the you know, HHKB, uh, you know, yeah. the happy hacking keyboard yeah. uh, on Gizmodo and she loves it. And I'm very opposed to 60% keyboards because yeah. I can't not have um, arrow keys, but I have a feeling that you might disagree with me yeah. uh, and uh, I, 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 I want to have a debate with you about this. All right. We'll talk. Sounds good. All right. Get some sleep, Christina. Get some sleep, Brett. The system is going down low.